Okay, so let's start tonight. We're going to read the Nicene Creed, which is on your paper. This is what emerged from the Council of Nicaea as the church gathered uh, to deal with the teachings of Arius. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, what exactly happened at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, Next week, we'll look more in detail at the actual Nicene Creed and talk about some of the phrases there. But I want to read it uh, at the beginning tonight. It's some of the most beautiful and Christ-exalting and Trinitarian words ever penned outside of Scripture. I was actually required to memorize this in seminary by Dr. Glenn Crider, one of my theology profs, and I'm grateful for that. But as I mentioned this morning, uh, you know, you get old and some of the things you want to memorize... So I know about it, I know it, but I don't have it memorized cold like I did for this theology class. But these are important words, enough that one of my professors said, you need to memorize that as part of your grade in our class. So here's the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, one in with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth, who because of men and our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered, and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, comes to judge the living and the dead, and, we believe, in one Holy Spirit. And to those who say, there was once when he was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or he came into existence from nothing, or who affirm that the Son of God is of another nature or substance or a creature or mutable or subject to change, such ones the Catholic or universal and apostolic church pronounces accursed and separated from the church. And so that beautiful piece of Christian doctrine and theology, that beautiful piece of Christian belief came about because of one guy that we were talking about Last week, a heretic by the name of Arius. Can anyone tell me about Arius? Do you remember Arius from last week? What did Arius do for a living? He was a preacher. Yeah, he was a preacher. He was a pastor. And what? Wrote Wrote songs. Really catchy songs that were spreading throughout the church. He would have given Chris Tomlin a run for his money, right? Really catchy songs that were uh, teaching... That Jesus was the very first thing or creature that God made. And that there was a time when Christ did not actually exist. That it was just God the Father, the the creator, the unoriginate as he called him. So, yes, Arius was the pastor, extremely popular. He began teaching there was a time when Christ was not. A phrase that's included here in the Nicene Creed. In fact, there's three quotes here. They're all quoting Arius. They're throwing Arius under the bus In the Nicene Creed, when they say things like, there was once when he was not. That was a a jingle that Arius made popular. I don't know the melody of it, but 
He was not before he was begotten. Another phrase. He came into existence from nothing. Those were his three most famous slogans that were catching on uh, and running rampant through Constantine's empire and through the church. And so Arius believed that there wasn't a time when Jesus did not exist. He's not talking about his, his physical incarnation. He's talking about before that, that there was a time in eternity past when Jesus did not exist. And so Arius believed that God was the very, I mean, that Jesus was the very first thing, creature, that God created. And so his teachings, as we talked about last week, were really uh, gathering momentum in the church. And it almost split the church and it almost split Constantine's empire right down the middle. So there was a theological discussion that caught the emperor Constantine's attention. Imagine our own president one day hearing that there's an argument taking place within the church in America, and he wants to call a council and we get all the pastors together to talk about it because the United States of America is about to be ripped in half because of a theological discussion. That's exactly what's happening here. So in the winter of uh, 324 to the summer of 325, A.D., Constantine called a council in the city of Nicaea in what is now modern-day Turkey to discuss the teachings of Arius. And at this council, Arius was condemned as a heretic and Arianism was condemned as heresy. His books were burned and he was banished in exile to Yugoslavia. But Arius did not just lay low in exile. He did not disappear after Nicaea. He didn't delete any of his social media accounts. In fact, he started posting even more things on Facebook. And he continued to spread his teachings, especially through his catchy worship songs. But tonight we're going to talk about what actually happened at the Council of Nicaea. A group of over 325 bishops and pastors Gathered, most of them coming from Arius's region, the Greek speaking East. Some of those who attended uh, at the Council of Nicaea had actually been imprisoned for their faith in years prior to this. Remember when persecution and martyrdom was just, I mean, it was a part and parcel of being a disciple that you would suffer. Some of these pastors and bishops who gathered were actually imprisoned through the time of suffering and persecution in the years leading up to this. Some even bore the marks of persecution on their bodies. They had scars. Many of these men, though, had corresponded with one another through the years. They had heard about each other. And now, at the Council of Nicaea, they're all sitting in the same room. There's people who were in Spain who would talk with people in Jerusalem. And now they're all in modern-day Turkey at the Council of Nicaea. And they're all sitting in the same room. And so here they are gathered together as brothers in the Lord, and Constantine, the government, picked up the bill and covered their expenses to get there. I mean, thank you, Uncle Sam. This is big government at its best, right? When they take care of pastors, right? So Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, it's how we know about some of the things that happened. He describes the scene this way. He says, in effect... The most distinguished of God's ministers from all the churches which abounded in Europe, Libya, and Asia were here assembled. 
And a single house of prayer, as though divinely enlarged, sufficed to contain at once Syrians and Cilicians, Phoenicians and Arabians, delegates from Palestine and others from Egypt, Thebans and Libyans, with those who came from the region of Mesopotamia. A Persian bishop, too, was present at this conference, nor was even a Scythian found wanting to the number. In other words, yeah, there were even Scythians there. Pontus, Galatia, Pamphylia, Cappadocia, Asia, Phrygia furnished their most distinguished bishops, while those who dwelt in the remotest districts of Thrace and Macedonia of Achaia and Epirus were notwithstanding in attendance. Even from Spain itself, one whose fame was widely spread took his seat as an individual in the great assembly. The bishop of the imperial city was prevented from attending by extreme old age, but his presbyters were present and supplied his place. Constantine is the first prince of any age who bound together such a garland as this with the bond of peace, and he presented it to his savior as a thank offering for the victories he had obtained over every foe, thus exhibiting in our own times a similitude of the apostolic company. So imagine the scene. I mean, it reads like that wonderful all nations filled passage in Revelation chapter 5. Every nation, race, tribe, and tongue, if you will, showed up at Nicaea. Imagine the diversity. Imagine how unique these individuals were and how they all looked different and came with different accents and different preferences for food when they fed them at lunchtime, right? All the diversity. And they're all unified. They're together primarily to shoot down the teachings of Arius and to defend the one true gospel. So Arius, though he was a pastor, he was not able to attend because he was not a bishop. Remember, he kind of had the the presbyter over the region and then the bishops over the city. And then you had the, the pastors. And so Arius was a pastor. He was not able to attend because he was not a bishop. But a few of his friends were there and they were going to represent him. One of his friends was a man by the name of Eusebius of Nicodemia, not to be confused with Eusebius of Caesarea that I just read that long quote from. Eusebius of Nicodemia spoke on behalf of Arius, and the people on the side of Arius thought, if we can just explain the logic behind our thinking, then all of this drama is going to get resolved, and they're going to see that we're not heretics, and Arius is going to be cleared of any wrongdoing, and Athanasius and Alexander, who are leading the charge against their friend Arius, they're actually going to be the ones who end up getting rebuked. And so at this point, Athanasius was only a deacon, so he did not get to sit in on the council. Uh, But there were bishops there from the Latin-speaking West, and they initially just kind of had a secondary interest in debate uh, because they thought it was just a little scuffle between all these Greek-speaking Eastern pastors For those in the West, they were okay with Tertullian's phrase where he had said three persons in one substance. That when you're talking about God, there's three persons, one substance. They said, hey, let's just say that and everything's good. But there were also a few other bishops there, around three, maybe four, that believed that Arius was wrong. But they held to the false belief of Patropassianism. Do you remember that? We looked at that two weeks ago. Patropassianism is... It comes from the, the Latin word uh, 
patri or pater for father and passion, meaning death. Those who believe that believe that God the Father is the one who died on the cross. So there were a few who showed up and believed that, and I'm sure their minds were changed uh, by the end of the council. So here was the agenda at Nicaea. Uh, They were not just discussing Arius. I mean, this is a pretty big deal. All the the pastors and the bishops in the area are gathered together. Uh, They gathered to discuss, interestingly, the date of Easter and when Christians should should celebrate it. They discussed the procedures of electing bishops and elders. When do you call them into the church? How do you pick them? What are you looking for? They were talking about the jurisdiction of bishops and which bishops would be in charge of of which churches, how many churches in a region, what are our boundaries there. And then they talked about the administration of the Lord's Supper. Um, But the main ticket item was the question concerning the person of Jesus and how Arius viewed him in light of the teaching of the Bible. And so from May to July in 325 A.D., uh, this was the main agenda dealing with Arius. Um, Bishops were gathered there. Many of the elders of churches got to kind of listen in as well as some people from each congregation. Even Constantine himself, it is said, was in attendance Uh, with many of his officials on some of these days. So the Council of Nicaea was the talk of the town. I mean, the Today Show, Jimmy Fallon, (laughs) CNN, Fox News, everybody was talking about it, and all because of one guy, Arius. And central to the discussion was this issue. Did Jesus have the same essence or the same nature as God the Father? Alexander, we saw last time, argued that Jesus was of the very same nature as the Father. The Greek word that Alexander and Athanasius proposed, we looked at it last time, was, uh, we'll talk more about this in a minute, uh, homo, uh, I'm going to get another O in there, please, homo usios, coming from the word same, homo sapien, homosexual, same, and usios, Meaning nature or essence. And so Alexander and Athanasius are proposing that Jesus has the exact same nature or essence as God the Father. That the Son is just like God the Father. He is the exact imprint of his nature as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. Arius' friend Eusebius of Nicodemia, though, spoke up and tried to present his case on behalf of Arius. And once he was done telling uh, the council what Arius and the small group of friends believed, it was clear that what they were saying was heretical and in direct contradiction to God's word. And so Eusebius' explanation actually caused several bishops, when he was finished, to cry, stand up and cry out, You lie! And blasphemy and heresy. So Eusebius was actually shouted down. His speech was yanked from his hands. It was ripped to shreds, a la Nancy Pelosi. And then it was trampled underfoot. That's how you respond to heresy. You rip the the manuscript from the guy's hands and you drop it on the ground and then you stomp on it. And so at this point, it was clear this is no minor doctrinal issue. 
that's going to be easily cleared up. This was serious. Remember that half the churches probably believed in Arius and what he was teaching. So the council was in unison. We need to reject Arianism in the clearest way possible. And so they set out to look through God's word, to look through the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament letters that they had. And they wanted to reject Arius' teachings using the scriptures. But they soon realized that it's going to be difficult to do this because Arius and his followers are just going to say, well, that's how you interpret that verse. That's not how we interpret that verse. So they knew we have to form a creed, a formal statement rejecting Arius. We can't just say scripture because they're just going to come back and say we interpret that scripture differently. It was actually Constantine who proposed using the word uh, homoousios in the actual wording of the Nicene Creed. But some people at the Council of Nicaea proposed that if we said that Christ was instead of homoousios, but now homoousios, same, I mean... uh, Hamoi is similar. Similar nature or essence. If we say that instead that he's Hamaousios, instead we say he's Hamoiousios, then this will be sufficient and make all of our troubles and arguments and drama go away. Some people were so desperate to make all of the, the fighting within the churches. They didn't like it. It's like, we've got to make this end. So here's how we do it. Let's compromise. Don't say that Jesus is of the same nature as God the Father. Let's say he is similar in nature. So there's this big debate throughout all the churches leading up to this and then coming to a head at, at Nicaea over these two very similar sounding words. Now notice... Here's the difference right there. It's the letter I. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Did Jesus have the same nature, homoousios, as God the Father, or was he similar, homoousios, with God the Father? And sometimes you see it spelled with the letter N. Uh, it's homoousion or homoousion. Sometimes you see it neither ending in an S or the letter N. These were the questions that were being discussed at Nicaea. In fact, as they were discussing these words at Nicaea, the followers of Arius were seen kind of snickering and winking at each other and saying, we can still get around this. You know, so they were kind of elbowing each other and saying, don't worry, we got this. Athanasius actually tells us about their snickering and whispering and winking. It's the other long quote that's on your notes there. We'll read it. Here's what Athanasius says about this. Again... When the bishop said that the word, that's Jesus, must be described as the true power and image of the Father in all things exact and like the Father and as unalterable and as always and as in him without division, for never was the word not, but he was always existing everlastingly with the Father as the radiance of light, Eusebius and his fellows endured indeed, like they're putting up with us talking about this, as not daring to contradict, being put to shame by the arguments which were argued against them, but withal, they were caught whispering to each other and winking with their eyes that words like like and always and power and in him were, as before, common to us and the Son, and that it was no difficulty to agree to these. 
But since the generation of the Son, that's the begottenness of the Son from the Father, is not according to the nature of men, humanity, and not only like, but also inseparable from the essence of the Father, and he and the Father are one, as he has said himself, and the Word is ever in the Father, and the Father in the Word, as the radiance stands towards the light, for this the phrase itself indicates, therefore the council, as understanding this, suitably wrote one in essence, that they might both defeat the perverseness of the heretics and shew that the, or show that the word was other than originated things. So you see, they loved commas back then and dangling participles. I don't know, but you got to read it slow and think about it. Athanasius is saying, as we're talking about it, they're kind of winking at each other and elbowing each other and saying, we can still get around this, okay? It's no big deal. But he's made it very clear. No, we're rejecting what they said. So after three months of discussion, it came time to vote. Was what Arius was teaching false? Did it contradict the Bible? Was it heresy? Does Jesus have the same essence and nature as God the Father? The results, and when you read about it, the number of positive votes will vary depending on who you read. They're not sure about the exact number of positive votes, but the negative votes are very clear and they're always the same. It was a landslide. Even uh, though the number of positive votes will vary, here's what church historian Stephen Nichols says. He says, sticking with numbers, the vote at Nicaea was not close. Pinpointing the number of bishops in attendance is difficult. Numbers range from 220 to 318. The number of yay votes ranged anywhere from 218 to, 203, or to 316. Scholars know the number of nay votes with accuracy. There were two cast by friends of Arius. So you have between 218 and 316 bishops voting in the affirmative that Jesus had the same nature in essence as God. There were two votes in the negative that were cast by the friends of Arius. So 316 to 2 is the final vote on the matter. 316 pastors who... Through the years, live in different areas, have different culture, different language, different backgrounds, and they're all... I think it would be very hard to find 316 pastors at a pastor's conference and put them in a group, in a room, and there are probably many things that they agree on, but there are going to be some things that they just don't agree on. And these guys all agreed. It was a landslide. There was a, it was a slaughter. So Athanasius and company prevailed over Arius. Arius uh, was exiled uh, along with many of his followers for teaching heresy. Arius was exiled. Again, it's important to understand, not because these bishops and pastors just didn't like him or because they were on some sort of power trip. Arius was exiled for teaching contrary to the Bible's teaching about the essence or the nature of Jesus the Son. And so as a result of the vote uh, at Nicaea, Arius and his followers were sent into exile to Yugoslavia, where he did not go down without a fight. And so the debates didn't just end after Nicaea. Condemning Arius and his teachings at the Council of Nicaea was relatively easy compared to the task of rooting out the Arian teachings that were so prevalent in the churches. So Athanasius had to spend the rest of his life laboring to refute Arius 
and to teach that Jesus had the same essence as the Father. And so followers of Arius continued to promote this heresy, and so Athanasius continued to fight for the truth. Here's how you spell his name. I think it's on your paper, though. Athanasius. Yeah, great. Good question. Yeah, why did they banish him to Yugoslavia? I mean, that doesn't seem like banishment. I, I don't think it was like, hey, you're going to Yugoslavia. No, anywhere but Yugoslavia. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was that. It was just probably that's just where they decided to send him. I don't know why, the particular reason why. Um, unless it's like, you know, when I came here, people used to say, oh, you don't want to go to Bakersfield. You know, <laughs> you visit and you're like, I mean, it's not that bad. It was a little hot, but I liked it. But you came here and you're like, man, Bakersfield must be terrible. But Bakersfield gave us the Bakersfield sound in country western music. So I'm like, why do people hate Bakersfield? <laughs> Heather's great uncle was a part of that Bakersfield music scene. Uh, you can look him up. Joe and Rosalie Mathis, that double neck guitar. He was playing with like Lefty Frizzell and many people like that. So uh, look him up. She's got an interesting story on that. So you know, why people hate Bakersfield, I have no idea. They gave us one of the greatest sounds in music. So... Anyway, he's, they're banished to Yugoslavia. Um, things were not easy for Athanasius, though, after the Council of Nicaea. Even though Constantine and the council had, uh, and the bishops and the elders decided that this is, his teachings were wrong, Constantine eventually actually sent Athanasius into exile in 336. Why? Because Constantine was tired of all the theological discussions that were still going on after Nicaea. He's like, I thought we dealt with this. And he's like, I ended up in some face group chat group and my notifications are going off and it's driving me nuts. So he's like, you know what? Athanasius is behind it. I'm sending you into exile now. And so he did. To Yugoslavia? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bakersfield, I think. <laughs> so... Constantine, I think, really only called, or one of the main reasons he called the Council of Nicaea was to keep his empire from splitting apart at the seams. So when Athanasius kept defending the truth, and other bishops who didn't like Athanasius kept complaining about him, and when these theological discussions continued, Constantine grew tired of it, and he had Athanasius exiled. So it appears that his policy was let the church decide what is best for it. But when it bothered Constantine, he said, I'm going to intervene. And so he did by sending Athanasius into exile in 336. Eusebius of Nicodemia, Arius's friend, who spoke on behalf of Arius at the Council of Nicaea and who they believe was a distant relative of Constantine, he presented Arius's case once again to the emperor. And Constantine then reasoned, hey, We've been too hard on this Arius guy. And so he had Arius recalled from exile and then restored him to his church and to his position. What year was that? Uh, I don't have the year on that. I'm sorry, I don't have the year on that. Uh, eventually, Constantinus II took control of the Eastern Empire in 337, which included Alexandria, where Athanasius was bishop and where he lived. And Constantinus actually said, I like Arius. So he sent Athanasius back into exile for another seven years, beginning in 339. So he went in 336, sometime, I don't know how long, at least a couple years he was there maybe, comes back, and then in 339, the new emperor, Constantinus II, says, I like Arius, so Athanasius, you're going back into exile. Um, 
So even though Athanasius was on the winning side of the debate at Nicaea, Constantina still had it in for him and was determined to make life difficult for him. But this did not stop Athanasius. He continued to preach against Arius, filling his sermons with the orthodox position of Nicaea. He began writing books to counter the claims of Arius, books called like uh, Against the Arians, great title, and a book called On the Incarnation. Every time that Athanasius was getting some traction in seeing Arianism rooted out of the churches, Constantinus would intervene. He would dispatch his troops and carry Athanasius into exile again and again. Once, Constantinus sent and had Athanasius arrested and exiled right in the middle of when he was serving communion. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and they march in and cuff your pastor, and off he goes. But then the crowds would cry out for his release and Constantinus would relent and let Athanasius return home. So this was the life of suffering that Athanasius endured for the sake of the gospel. And in the end, he was exiled five times. Once by Constantine from 336 to 338. Twice by Constantinus, 339 to 346 and 356 to 366. So... A good chunk of time there. Once by Julian, 362 to 364. And once by Valens, 365 to 364. So it's like he's coming and going, coming and going. Athanasius actually spent more time in exile than he did pastoring his church and serving as bishop. In 46 years as bishop of Alexandria, he only spent 17 years in the city. Not only did Athanasius endure exile... He endured a smear campaign by Constantinus. Constantinus actually strong-armed all the bishops to sign a document against Athanasius, and it sparked a new slogan, which is this. Sometimes you'll read about this. It's called uh, Athanasius <coughs> Contra Mundum. Athanasius against the world which is what it felt like. He's battling not only the political system, but still even people inside the church. So Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. But even as he was in exile, Athanasius got the upper hand because he used this time to write books to refute Arius. He even wrote a biography on Antony, who had fled into the deserts of Egypt to flee persecution and who started one of the very first monasteries. And so Athanasius was so impressed with Antony's life that he wanted the church to hear about him. So he wrote a book, a biography called Life of Antony. Eventually, Augustine, who will look at him in time, Augustine read Life of Antony and he said that next to the Bible... Athanasius's book, Life of Antony, had the most impact on his life. So even though Athanasius suffered so much and so much good still came out of his exiles. And the same can be said for any of us who are suffering. We never know how our suffering will help others. For Athanasius, I'm going to write a book and it's going to influence Augustine, one of the premier theologians in church history. Think about that. It's like what we talked about this morning, the doctrine of concurrence, how God is working through all the evil things that people do to us and say about us. He's working through that to extend his kingdom, to bring himself glory, but then to bring good into our lives. I can't wait to meet Athanasius one day. I think every Christian should know his name and know who he is because for over 60 plus years, 
He defended the doctrine that Jesus is of the same essence and nature as God the Father. He defended, according to Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Sixty years Athanasius was defending Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Sixty years defending the church against one letter. The letter I in ha moi usium. Again, to quote church historian Stephen Nichols, he says this about the tenacity of Athanasius. He says, Athanasius took hold of an idea, the word homoousion, and would not for life or limb or exile let go. The church could not be as grateful to anyone as they can and should be to Athanasius, a theologian who wrangled not just over a word, but over a letter for six decades. Athanasius spent his life in one long theological debate over apparent minutia. And if he hadn't, we'd all be in trouble. One has to ask why Athanasius endured so much for so long. Why did he wrangle for decades over one word, over one letter? I. The reason comes in a phrase also found in the Nicene Creed, a phrase that is attributed to Athanasius. It may not be too much of a stretch to claim this phrase to be one of the most profound, if not beautiful, phrases in all of theological literature. The phrase, for us and for our salvation. Athanasius wrangled with the best minds of the day and endured persecution at the hands of the most powerful politicians of the day, all for the sake of the gospel. The person of Christ, Athanasius believed, had everything to do with the work of Christ. If the church got it wrong on the person of Christ, the church would be wrong on the work of Christ. Athanasius spent six decades contending for a letter and contending against the world for the sake of the gospel. Amazing. And his tenacity paid off. After his death in 373, the second ecumenical council gathered at Constantinople in 381. We'll look at it in several weeks. Where Theodosius II was determined to root out any trace elements of Arius and his false teachings. At that point, it's like, no more. We're, we're scrubbing the church of this stuff. We're getting out some disinfectant and getting rid of um, this disease. So, back to the Council of Nicaea. On June 19th, 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was composed and it affirmed that Jesus, the Son of God, shared God the Father's nature and essence as God, It affirmed, contrary to Arius, that Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, a la Hebrews 1.3. And it affirmed that Jesus had always existed as God in eternity past and that he was never created. And so the Nicene Creed, here's what it really did. It made explicit what the church had always implicitly believed. And that's important to understand. The church had already implicitly believed this about Jesus. But since heretics also appeal to Scripture, and since they interpret it the way they want to interpret it, the Nicene Creed was composed to spell out explicitly what the church had already and had always believed implicitly. So what the church believed implicitly about the triune God was made explicit throughout the creeds and councils of church history, and we'll look at more in time. 
And that's what the councils and creed of church history do. They highlight and they make explicit what the church has always believed. The word creed, since we're talking about it, comes from the Latin verb credo, which means I believe. And that's what the Nicene Creed is doing. It's telling Christians this is what we believe. So what the creeds and the councils of church history and why it's important to study them is what they do is they draw circles around what we can and can't say about God. So they're drawing a circle around this and saying this is what we can say about God and this on the outside is what we can't say about God. They give us parameters that we must stay within when we think about God and when we discuss God. And so I think the creeds and the the councils of church history are actually fulfilling the biblical mandate to defend the faith, to keep the faith, like Jude says, to defend the faith. And so as we've seen through our discussion in the last several weeks on Sunday morning, good theology doesn't just happen, does it? You don't just wake up and have a full-blown Trinitarian view of God, do you? Even when you become a Christian, do you have a full blown Trinitarian view of God? No, you have to learn. Good theology doesn't just happen. It takes work. It takes study. It takes deep thinking. It takes three months of discussion to hammer out these truths. And you have to think hard and think deep to be a good theologian. Good theologians defend the good theology that they believe. Or as one of my heroes, my church history professor, Dr. Jeff Bingham says, he said this, this after all is what church leaders do. They explain to their congregations acceptable parameters within which they are to understand and interpret the Bible. They also point out unacceptable interpretations. Good theology doesn't just happen. Church leaders who care for their congregations don't allow unacceptable thinking about the Trinity to go unchecked. Church leaders must first be the church's theologians. Do the councils answer all of our questions about the Trinity? No, but they do give us boundaries within which, in, within which we find acceptable interpretations of the scriptures about the Trinity. We may not have all the answers, but we know things we should say and believe, and we know views We shouldn't hold. So pastors are called to explain these acceptable parameters that you have to stay within to understand the Bible. Did I see a hand? Any questions? So the creeds and councils of church history give us these boundaries uh, to stay within. They help draw circles around what we can and can't believe about God. And so what the Council of Nicaea did, they said, if you mess up the person of Jesus, you lose everything. If you mess up the person, who he is in his nature, then you mess up his work, right? If you get the person of Christ wrong, then you get his work wrong. If, I mean, let's, let's talk about this. Let's do theology here. What if Jesus was the first created being? How does that change the cross? Yeah, so then you don't really, if he's not God, then you really don't have God dying on the cross, do you? You have a created being that Arius would say, yeah, he's God. But by saying that God created him, you're then saying he's not God. So then it's like, well, I mean, have something else die on the cross for us, right? So if you get the person of Jesus wrong, and this is what they're getting at at Nicaea. If we mess up Jesus, it's all, it's over. There's no salvation. Game over. There's no salvation. No resurrection. Yeah. 
which is why then uh, Athanasius was attributed with that phrase, for us and for our salvation. That he was incarnated and he did take on human flesh, Jesus, for us and for our salvation. But if he's not the son of God, none of that makes sense. No cross, no resurrection. If you get Jesus wrong, then you get the gospel wrong, right? And if you get Jesus wrong, like Laura said, you don't have salvation, you don't have forgiveness of sins, you don't have anything but a, a made-up Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. So what Nicaea did was draw circles around these things, and that's why it's so important to study church history, because Arius, as they were looking at Hebrews 1.3, Arius interpreted Hebrews 1.3 differently. If you quoted a verse to Arius... He would quote scripture to contradict you. And then he might even quote the same verse and just say, well, we just interpret it differently. That's your interpretation. Have you heard that before? Well, that's just your interpretation. Okay, so this is why we need the creeds and why we need the councils of church history. Again, to quote my prof, uh, Jeff Bingham, he said, the interpretation of scripture passed down by the apostles and preserved by the bishops was a safeguard in the face of heretics who also appeal to Scripture. Heretics always quote the Bible, don't they? Now, a lot of times people you watch on TV don't talk about the Bible much. But when they want you to give money, they're like, where's my Bible? Right? we got to find a verse in there that says, God will bless you if you give me money. Right? Heretics always quote the Bible. As I said last week, you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. That's why we need church history. It's why we need the community of faith uh, so that we can understand the parameters that we have to stay within. So why is all of this important? Why is Nicaea important? Because how we view God will determine everything in our life, right? What about our culture today who says, I know God's word says that, but this is what I feel about this subject or this topic. How does our view of God change everything about us? Right? If people don't have this full, robust view of God as revealed in the scriptures, then what's going to happen? It's going to change the way they live. So the most important thought that we will ever think is what we think of God. Because it changes and determines every dimension in our life. A.W. Tozer said it this way in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. And that's why we're studying church history. Carl? I'm going to throw a monkey wrench at it. Okay. I'll let somebody else answer when it. I, when I came to faith, I had no idea that Jesus was God. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I've said this before in the class. I think we're all, when we're born again, we're born again and we're heretics. Yeah. <laughs> the first second after salvation because it's a learning process and what we understand. But if you remember back to our class that we did on discipleship on the walk about a year and a half ago, this is where uh, the doctrine of regeneration comes into play, right? And so uh, if... Carl fully didn't understand everything. Is that on him as he's getting saved or is it on the Holy Spirit and regeneration? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us alive. Do we have a lot of questions? Yeah. Do we still understand everything? No, but he's the one who makes us alive when we hear the gospel. So, yeah, I'm not shocked to hear that because, gosh, you, someone gets saved on the street. You tell them God loves you. And send his son to die for you. You want to believe and turn from your sins. If the spirit regenerates them, they repent, they have faith, and they're like, I know that little nugget. That's all I, especially here on the Central Coast, right? That's all I got is that little bit that God loves me and sent his son to die for me. I believe. He's like, well, did you know there's actually one God eternally existing in three persons? That's where discipleship comes in, right? And so, yeah. It, it, to me, I believe in the doctrine of regeneration, that it's the Spirit who makes us alive. He causes us to come alive so that we can, so that we can repent and believe. But He's got to be the one that makes us alive. And I think Rob, brought, Rob Grindy brought this up in his uh, sermon on Sanctity of Life Sunday. He said, what about infants? What about those who die? God is the one who regenerates. And if He says, hey, I can regenerate a baby in the womb... For its life, and that's God can do what He wants to do, right? Right. So that was very. If you become a, a saved as a child, yeah, are you is your brain mature enough to understand? Yeah. No, but that's why it has to grow. Yeah. As you grow. Yeah. Into it. Yeah, it's about discipleship and learning and growing. We don't. Uh, it's. I like to say I love to hear that kids grow up in church and say I can't like pick a time mm -hmm. when I came to faith in Christ. I've just always believed in Him. Yeah. Was there a point in time, as we know it, when that person repented of their sins and trusted in Christ? Absolutely. Some people have that. Some people don't. I think Carl's can tell you his story, driving down the road, looking at the moon or something, right? And coming to faith in Christ. Some people can't. But we know if regeneration is real, there is a point in time when a sinner is adopted into God's family. Sometimes for kids, it's kind of murky, and so if a kid is saying, man, all I've ever known is this. Well, maybe they were regenerated when they were three, you know, and they believed. And then they went and hit their brother, <laughs> right? And they're like, oh, I don't know if they were saved. Maybe they were. God knows ultimately, right? Uh, Greg? Yeah, I just, uh, maybe you can help uh, support this or refute it, uh, being, you know, from the South like you were, like I was, and I kind of going off with trouble saying, I mean, I didn't understand until listening to Chuck Sundahl one day, like when I was in my late 20s, you know, after I'd rededicated my life as an adult to Christ, uh, even though I grew up in the church, because of the idea or the thinking, which kind of countermanded the regeneration in, in the Protestant churches back in the South, which was, you know, if you sin, you backslid, right? Yeah. So my understanding of that statement growing up was, you know, I'm not saved now. i got to mm -hmm. repent. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah. So I had that understanding until I was in my 20s, you know, and uh, I thought every time I messed up really bad, I was, you know, not saved anymore. 
so that can kind of repeat the regeneration. Was that yeah? Something I, yeah, across? I dealt with that. I, I mean, once I came to understand the gospel, I talked to people and they're like, well, if you if somebody says, if somebody asks you if you have a nickel in your pocket and you lied and then you died, they're like, that's unconfessed sin. You're going to hell. And I thought, this does not sound like the gospel to me. It was a church I was visiting, and I was challenging the people like, that's not the gospel at all. Because, my goodness, do you know what's in my heart? There's sins I don't even know that that I need to confess, that I just move on because I'm so comfortable with them. Uh, You know, I I did experience that. I think it's it's very, it's a part, and it's a part of some denominations. Um, But it goes back to... Uh, the blood of Christ and the gospel being sufficient. And so there is a point in time when people are saved. We may not know when that is. We might know. We might know for sure. But it might be murky for some people. you know. And so I always just tell people, what do you believe today? Are you now? And there's that passage in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, that says the Lord knows those who are his. That, I go back to that a lot and say, Lord, you know if this person is yours or not. Do we fully understand everything when we come to faith? No. I mean, you have, you have the Pharisees who knew God's word forwards and backwards, and they don't get it. And Jesus is trying to teach them. And then you have Paul who doesn't get it. You have Peter who's born again, but then he decides, oh, I've been eating bacon and loving it, but then here come my Jewish brothers, and I've got to act like I have never eaten this. So he falls back. Um, you have uh, Priscilla and Aquila who are pulling Apollos aside and saying, teaching him the right way. And so we grow in our understanding. Um, And so whether or not you were born again at eight or did it really make sense at 20, the Lord knows, you know, he knows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the modern day church, uh, when, you know, when they're formulating their statement of faith, do they look to the Nicene Creed? It kind of depends on the denomination. Some do. Some will. Usually, I would think most people uh, on the Trinity are at least going to, they're going to be influenced by that. Mm -hmm. Some churches maybe just like, you know, copy and paste. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some churches are very uh, uh, intentional about this and want to make sure. Some churches will put... The Apostles' Creed is a part of their statement of faith, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Creed of Constantinople, you know. But I think if you kind of squeeze them down, you can get some of, you can get some of that from this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so some do. Okay. Yeah, I think it's important to at least talk about it and know it, know what we believe. Um, and I think you can see elements of it in our statement of faith mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. You know. Most churches, I'm saying most, kind of like I'm throwing the church under the bus the last couple of weeks, but a lot of churches, they're like doctrine and theology. That's not going to bring people in. We don't want to talk about that. Our, our statement of faith is God is good. We're all kind of messy and we're going to make it, you know, th- those things may be true. But if you, your loved one is, you know, sick in the hospital or dying, those little catchphrases aren't going to comfort you, are you? What is, is like rich, deep theology that God is sovereign, the doctrine of concurrence, that he's working through this. Even though we don't understand it, he's going to bring good out of it. And so some churches, I think, want to punt on theology and doctrine because they think, oh, nobody's going to come in. So then they want to do a bait and switch. You know, get the guy into the church and you sit him down. It's like, okay, now let's read systematic theology. And the guy's like, wait a minute. 
I wanted all the fun, cool, the, the, the fireworks and stuff. And now you're going to try to drop theology on me instead of just being who they should be. Does that, does that yeah, make sense? Because it's so, it's so profound, you know, yeah. what this says. Yeah. It's, you know, I wonder if they consider it like old language. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think you can take it and then kind of modernize it a little bit because it's kind of wordy. Um, but you can explain those things and make them a little more easier to understand while still keeping the truth. But I mean, I'd love, it's not because I'm a pastor, like just thinking about the doctrine of concurrence this week has just brought so much comfort to my heart that God is working through all the evil in this world, everything that happens for his glory and to bring good into my life. And that he's a God that he doesn't call the evil good. It's like, it's evil. But you know what? I can purpose in and through it to bring good out of it. So I love that God still is like, no, that's evil. That's an evil thing that Joseph's brothers did to him. He's not just kind of whitewashing over it. He's saying, that was evil what they did to you, but I'm going to bring good out of it. That comforts me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it, it's what God's using to trans, transform you. Yeah. So, and, and we want to be transformed to, the, to Christ. Yeah. By Christ. So, he uses that to do that to us, even though it's hard to accept. Yeah. So let's talk about the doctrine of concurrence. That's kind of a big theological phrase. You start unpacking it. You know, you start talking about secondary causes and things like this. But kind of go along with your question, Carrie, of, you know, do churches use these big ideas? Yeah, they break them down sometimes. What's another famous passage that teaches us about the doctrine of concurrence but isn't like, you know, so wordy? What's a very common phrase? Probably one of the most, like you got to know this verse to be a Christian. Yes. Thank you, Mary. Romans 8, 28. God's working, what? Everything together for our good. For those called according to... That's the doctrine of concurrence. But we can reduce it down to... And we can tell someone, not say, well, actually, there's something called the doctrine of concurrence. Where God <laughs> sovereignly ordains, and yet he doesn't uh, w- remove secondary causes, nor does he do violence to the will of all creatures involved through their decisions. We can break it down to someone who's hurting and say... God is working through this for your good. Trust it's hard, Him. Though. Yeah. yeah. Hard to receive. Hard to believe. To share. Yeah. Too. Hard to share. Sometimes, and sometimes you just don't have to share it. Sometimes you just you put your arm around them and you don't say a word. So is doctrine refreshing and thrilling and full of hope and encouraging? Yes. And so I think churches should do more of it, share more of it, because it does give hope. Yeah, the Lord knows those who are his. Uh, I don't know if he was his based on what he's saying. I would, based on what he is saying, I would say no, because he's created another Jesus. You know, is there a point, was there a point where he was just simply in error? Like he believes in Jesus, but he's in error, still a believer? Possibly. At some point, he's dug his heels in so much that he's saying this is the God I believe in, the God that was created. And I would say, you, you can't believe in that God and be saved. You have to believe in God's eternal Son. Now, did he, in the privacy of his own life, repent someday? I, I don't know. Yeah. Pastors are held to a higher standard. So yeah. God is taken seriously. Yeah. Well, and I think for him, just like for anyone... I mean, if you're saying, I believe that the first creature that God ever made died on a cross for my sins, we would say, that's not the God of the Bible like we talked about this morning, right? 
Jesus is not the very first thing that creature that God made, the very first person that he made. He is the eternal son of God. And without that, you really don't have the gospel. And so if Arius is saying, no, this is what I believe. God made Jesus sometime in eternity past and he eventually became a man and died on a cross and I'm placing my faith in that. He's really not placing his faith in the Jesus of the Bible. You know, ultimately, God knows what's going on the end of his, in his heart at the end of his life. But, yeah. I don't like to say that person is not a Christian. Typically, you know, I can at least say they're a heretic, which kind of implies they're not a Christian, right? But ultimately, God knows the heart, right? So I don't know what happened in Arius' heart. He believed in his heart that he was doing the right thing. Yeah, he, well, I think he probably did believe in his heart that he was doing the right thing. Uh, but he was in error. The way you have preachers on prosperity, preachers on TV who are, you know, saying these things, and you're like, you really believe that? You can be sincere. I mean, Hitler was very sincere, wasn't he? And had people flocking to him. But sincerity is not the test of faith. The truth is, truth is the test of faith. What are you believing in? You can be sincere and say, I believe that that lectern right there, wooden lectern, uh, died on the cross. And you can be very sincere about that, but it, that's not true saving faith. True saving faith is found in God's eternal Son living and dying. Oh, I was just going to hit on what you, and kind of ask a question kind of off topic here about modern history. Did the Nazi movement, the Arianism, come from the base of this because of the similar nature, you know, like God kind of thing, thinking. Being. Yeah, I, I can't remember how close it is tied to act this. I, I should know that. I can't remember off the top of my head. Like I said this morning, I can't remember. I was just curious if that was the, yeah. if that's where they got it from. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. I should know the answer to that. but. I mean, they could, you know, define it. That yeah, way. yeah. So, yeah, so I'll look into that. Any other final questions or comments? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you save sinners and that you're the one that does the work. Your spirit regenerates us and help us to share the good news uh, with others. And Lord, there are times when, when we want to say that person is not a Christian and we may be wrong. So keep us humble, Lord. Uh, through the years, my younger years, it was much easier to say, oh, that person's not a Christian. But Lord, you are the one who knows those who are yours. Help us to share the truth of your word with our, uh, here on the Central Coast with people, Lord. So many people don't know you. Help us to share the gospel uh, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.